Good morning, my name is Claire O'Brien. Our second reading is from John chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And when he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they might believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. The word of the Lord. We're here in John chapter 11, and I mentioned this at the very beginning of the service in case you missed it. John 11 is the turning point, the climactic turning point in the gospel of John that's telling the narrative of who Jesus is as the Christ, the Son of God. It's the turning point which includes the seventh sign. So John is known for having seven miraculous signs. This is the seventh and climactic one. It is, of course, the most dramatic because he raises somebody from the dead. We find out in John chapter 11 that the reason why Jesus is killed or why the religious leaders decide to execute him is because of this. And it reveals Jesus as the Christ, the one who comes in the power of God Almighty. It also gives us a, a picture of God's view of death and his intentions with it and calls us, invites us to live fearlessly, live fearless lives even in the face of death. So let me reread those first couple of verses that Claire just read to set the scene for what Jesus is trying to do 
and what we can learn from it this morning. In John chapter 11, verses 1 through 5, we read, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So we know the story of Lazarus and Martha and Mary not just from this scene and from the one that happens in the next chapter, but from the other gospel readings. Jesus was good friends with the three of them. Presumably, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, by all accounts, lived together under one house, a house that probably Lazarus inherited from his parents. What's interesting is we don't have any descriptions of Martha or Mary being associated with a husband or a father, and in that culture, that's how you named a female. You would say, oh, it is the, the, uh, Sarah, the wife of Abraham, or the daughter of so-and-so, but they associate her, or the, both the Mary and Martha, with Lazarus, meaning they lived under one roof. And presumably, none of them were ever married because nobody is described as a widow or a widower. Jesus stays with them regularly when he's heading to Jerusalem because they live in Bethany just two miles outside. And Jesus loves them. It says that again and again in his descriptions and his emotions with regards to Lazarus and his death with Martha and Mary and their grief. It's clear that Jesus personally knew them and spent time with them, was invested in them, and the death of Lazarus was the death of somebody as close as a brother and the the grief of his sisters in Mary and Martha. Jesus is about 100 miles off in Galilee, and Lazarus is sick, and this is a sickness that must have come on somewhat quickly, but also was declining very, very quickly. They send for Jesus. To send a person 100 miles away on foot, a servant, a friend, was a long-distance journey, and they were taking this illness very seriously. He was nearing death. And they knew Jesus, right? Jesus heals people. They'd seen that. Come, Jesus, come now, before before Lazarus, before our brother dies. But Jesus waits. And he says in verse 4, you know, the reason why he's sick, don't worry, this isn't going to end as you guys think. He says, it is for the glory of God. This illness is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Just as a short note on that, um, we need to be careful how we read that. Read it in light of how Christian theology and how Jesus in particular describes things like this. Jesus is not saying that the illness is in order to bring glory to God, meaning God afflicted him with this illness so that God could do something cool. God doesn't afflict us with suffering and illness in order to say, hey, watch this cool thing I'm going to do. Rather, the illness was an occasion was an occasion for God's glory to be revealed. God used an illness that came about on Lazarus because this is a fallen and broken world. There are sinful and evil people. Suffering happens. And what Jesus is getting at here, not just in this instance, is that all suffering, all suffering as a part of this broken and fallen world, all suffering may be an occasion for the spread of God's glory. And of course, when we say God's glory, we need to be careful how we use that. If that's a phrase that that doesn't ring well, it's because we have ideas in our head when you hear the word glory of fame and praise. People in our culture or historically are always looking after their renown, their fame, 
They, they want to be known. They want to do something that is praiseworthy. But when the Bible talks about God's glory, God's glory is actually the revelation of the character and nature of God. Okay? It's who God is, being revealed and shared and experienced by others. So God's glory is his power and his perfection and his goodness and his grace and his mercy being shared and enjoyed. You want God's glory to be spread. And as many of us know, it's often God's glory, this this experience of God is often experienced more deeply and more personally in trials than when things are going really well in your life. Jesus waits a few days. The illness leads to death. Lazarus dies. And then Jesus goes to Bethany. And as he's arriving, he meets Mary and Martha. But we have to remember again, Mary and Martha is the depth of their suffering and grief here. If it is as it seems like they live together, then the people caring for Lazarus as he was dying, as his body was breaking down, were Mary and Martha, the sisters. Death is not a pretty thing. I don't know how many of you have had to care for people who are sick and dying. But in the final days and the final weeks, the body breaks down. There's pain, there's disorientation. It is, it is not always peaceful. It usually is not. Breathing becomes labored, contortions on the face from pain. And in that culture, of course, you didn't have morphine. Mary and Martha are the ones caring for their brother as his body is breaking down. This is a horribly traumatic evil. And they're experiencing it firsthand. So Jesus comes to them in their trauma, in the grief of losing their brother. And it's not just somebody they loved, it was actually somebody they depended on. Again, in that culture, to not have a male, a male head of household meant that you didn't have a voice in the community. You might not have had your rights protected in in courts of law. You had no way to provide for yourself. They were probably also in despair. And Jesus comes in and intervenes. I am the resurrection and the life. Do not fear. And yet he also weeps with with Mary in her sadness. Jesus is taking in all of the emotion of all of the people, people he cares about deeply, Martha and Mary and the people around them. And we read, Jesus gets to a point of an even greater sense of emotion in verse 38, uh, in verse 33, sorry, When it says, when Jesus saw her weeping, Mary, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping at the death of Lazarus, Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Jesus throughout this time is is being described with very real open emotions, very visceral, very, um, very powerful emotions. And two of the words that are used here are very unique and incredibly powerful. One of them is is this phrase that's translated greatly troubled. The psalmist talks again and again about being crushed by waves, the waves of life, the evils, the, the fallenness of this world. He's being crushed by waves, and it's basically the same term that's used, greatly troubled. That greatly troubled is also used a chapter later when Jesus is describing to the disciples that he's going to the cross. I'm going to Jerusalem, and they are going to crucify me, and he is greatly troubled inside. 
A chapter later in John chapter 13, 31, he describes the betrayal of one of his closest friends, Judas. And in the describing of the betrayal of one of your closest friends, Jesus is deeply, greatly troubled. He's overwhelmed with sorrow and grief. And he's deeply moved. The other phrase that's used here, if you've heard sermons on this, you've heard the phrasing of it. This is actually a term that was used of war horses as they were going into battle. The war horse making noises, guttural, snorting noises. The horse being ready to attack in battle. It is a rearing up and ready to fight. There is a, it is the, the outrage and fury of intense anger. In fact, the commentators note that this is the strongest Greek word for anger. Fury and outrage would be the right terminology for it. So why? Why is Jesus so overwhelmed with grief? Why is he so furious when he knows very well in about two minutes he's going to raise him from the dead? Why? Because he knows this. He is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But you know, Lazarus is going to die again. It's kind of a rough thing there. Like, thanks. Ten years later, twenty years, you know. And Jesus knows the evil of death. Because behind death are Satan, sin, and this fallen and broken world, and all of the evil that is here. I can relate to that. It was about 15 years ago that I got a call that a friend of mine that I had been a pastor of his church had died suddenly while on a weekend in the country with his family. He'd gone to bed early, wasn't feeling great. He never woke up. The widow, his wife called me, asked if I would come preach at, the, at his funeral. And I remember driving down to Richmond And in the middle of driving down there, just so upset and angry at death, taking this man. Tears were down my face, and I was cursing with the worst of words that you could use. At death itself, at Satan and sin in this fallen world and death. Because that's the only word I can use for it. Is the worst things that could come out of my mouth. And so, when you're really dealing with death, there is grief and sorrow. There is incredible grief and sorrow and waves of it. There can be compassion as you're walking with a friend who is dealing with the loss of somebody. And there should be anger. Sometimes death is merciful. It, it feels that way, at least. When there's age, you know, somebody's really old, or when they've dealt with a long sickness, it does feel merciful. But in the end, what Jesus is getting at is death is not as it should be. And how do I know this? Because even years later, when a death is a good death, if you're going to describe it that way, you still can ache for that person to be there when they're not anymore. My grandfather on my dad's side died over 20 years ago. He was in his mid-80s. He had lived a long life, and his death was pretty quick, and it was you know, peaceful, relatively speaking. And yet, there are still days that I remember him and think with longing ache that I will never see him again. I will never watch Wheel of Fortune with him, which he had to watch every night. I will never wake up as early as I possibly can, and already he's out there at the, at the frying pan with bacon sizzling. I will never swim in the river with him again as I did as a little kid. I will never go on a hike 
to Fiddle's restaurant and have a hot dog with him again, nor will my kids. He's gone. We are made to live forever. Death isn't evil, but everyone dies. And Lazarus was dead, and it looks like evil wins. But of course, Jesus. Jesus enters the evil of death. Moved with fury, he confronts death directly. We get this in verse 38 and 39. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, he's ready for battle. He's a growling lion. Jesus, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And the King James is beautiful. By this time he stinketh. Four days was a thing that Jesus had done on purpose. There was a superstition that's recorded in rabbinic writings that the spirit of a person might hover over the dead body for three days in case they came back. But by the fourth day, as the body began to decay, they would disappear. The spirit was gone forever. Jesus is waiting to say, look, none of your superstitions are going to work here. I am more powerful than those. Throw those out. Roll away the stone, the cave cut into the rock or, or a cave that was already built into the, the wall of a hill would have held probably multiple bodies in there. It would have been a family or community uh, grave area. Roll away the stone. The stone gets rolled away and Jesus calls out, Lazarus, come out. This is some of the most uh, distinctive declarations of command. Lazarus, here, now. Jesus, like the power of God in Genesis 1, who said, light, and there was light. Jesus is pulling out the power of creation, the one that said breath, life, sun, moon, everything, is standing there before this tomb. And as one preacher years ago said, the reason why he had to say, Lazarus, come out, is because if he had just said, come out, Every pile of bones, every dead body within hearing distance would have come out of the cave. No, no, just you, Lazarus. The rest of you stay there. I'll call you all later. Lazarus, still wrapped in his mummy wrappings, hops to the door and he's alive. Jesus says, loose him, set him free. It's the same Greek word that is used of Jesus setting somebody free from the demonic. It's not unintentional. Set him free. I have set him free from Satan and sin and death. And of course, it's what Jesus came to do. This resurrection of Lazarus is a sign pointing to what was going to happen in his own body and life just a a week or two later. But Jesus' resurrection, that Easter event, is different than Lazarus' resurrection. Lazarus' resurrection meant that his body that was decaying stopped. He came back to life. And in that moment, Jesus is saying, look, I can defeat Satan's sin and death in this moment. But on Easter Sunday, when he rose from the grave, 
He conquered Satan, sin, and death for good. Yes, we still deal with the ramifications of it, but is the anticipation that there will one day be a final resurrection, the resurrection of all things. That God's intention is to come and restore all things, to raise the dead and restore this creation as it was meant to be, so that there will be no more Satan, or never again will there be sin, or evil, or brokenness, or death. No more tears, no more grief, no more hopelessness, no more war, no more cancer, no more tragedies. And we will finally be alive alive, like alive where we're not breaking down physically or emotionally or relationally or spiritually. Lazarus' resurrection here pointing to Jesus' resurrection a few weeks later, declares that evil does not win. And if evil does not win, then we do not have to have a fear of death. You know, fear, I think, might be, and I I can't, like, quote this for certain, but just in my own experience, fear is probably the most common human emotion. And it's a prime motivator for almost everything we do. Because our kind of animal instinct is to survive, right? So fear is trying to survive. Now, most of our fears, the fears that we live out in a day-in and day-out basis, don't seem like a fear of death. Because it doesn't seem like life and death survival are on the line. But I would say every fear we have is actually a fear of a death. It's the fear of losing something. Whatever it is where your fears are built right now, your kids, your reputation, your career, your money. It's whatever matters most. In other words, whatever is our source of life is what we will end up fearing losing. So it is a fear of death. The question is this, how do we live? How do we live with the resurrection, not only of Lazarus and of Jesus, but of the future resurrection and its implications becoming real to us in such a way that we do not have fear. Because look, on one level, the resurrection to come one day, if you believe in Christ, there is assurance of your eternal life. And that is a hopeful thing. It says, even though I'm going to die, I will not die forever. But it's also telling us this. One of the things that we learn about what Jesus is doing is the resurrection to come, when you put your faith in Christ, begins to break into your life. Eternity breaks into your life even now as you begin to experience God on a new and eternal way. And it begins to transform your identity and purposes. What we're living for becomes different. And when what you're living for becomes Jesus, when it's truly Jesus, you're actually invincible. Because you know you can't die. Yeah, your body's going to stop at one point for now. But you can't die. And when Jesus is what you care about fully, you will not have any more fear. If we actually did not fear death in all of those terms, because we believed fully in the resurrection, we would be the most at-peace people in the world. Because our identity, our, our very sense of who we are, 
would be completely confident and fixed, knowing that we are Christ's and Christ is ours forever. And when that's truly our identity, nothing can be taken from us. And so we're just at peace, comfortable in our own skin. If we actually did not fear death because of the resurrection, not just because you're foolish and like to do risky things, you would be the most courageous people in the world. Because what can happen? What can happen in your life? People reject you, so what? Deny you getting what you want? Impose on your rights? Kill you? When your identity and worth and future are fixed and eternal, you can't really lose anything that matters to you. If we did not fear death because of the resurrection, we'd be the most at peace, the most courageous, the most selfless. We'd be the most selfless people in the world because we don't need to defend our own position all the time. We're not always clawing and striving, trying to earn our way into some sort of heaven. We know where our heaven is. We don't need to be seen or noticed or recognized. We don't need to get credit. We don't need to guard our place. And therefore, we can be generous. Give of ourselves and our emotion, even to needy people, to people who can't repay you or help you advance. If we stop fearing death because of the resurrection, we will be the most faithful people in the world. Not worry that we're going to miss out on something that God's withholding because he says this, calls us to some other type of life. There's some experience, some life that we're not going to be a part of. We'd be able to obey God with reckless abandon. You know, to follow Jesus is a sacrifice. It is a sacrifice. And it is a greater sacrifice to some. The call into sexual ethics in Christianity is a greater sacrifice for a single person. And a single person in their 30s, or 40s, or 50s. The call to follow Jesus is a sacrifice. It's a greater sacrifice to a Christian in a in certain Muslim context than here in the West. It will cost you your family, your reputation, possibly your life. But if you believe in a very daily way in the resurrection, then following Jesus wholeheartedly for 80 years, 80 years of faithfulness and the character and the closeness with God that it cultivates when you follow him daily, 80 years, that's 90, 100. What is that compared to 8 billion, 9 trillion, 10 quadrillion years in the joys of the resurrection? But that means we need to move from a belief in an abstract God into the belief in the personal Jesus. You know, you can reject God in the abstract. It is easy to not believe in some omniscient spirit that you can't see, right? Like, I'm not sure if I believe in God, or where is God, or... But all of us must do something with the real Jesus who actually lived and walked the earth, and who has transformed history. He was personal, he was powerful, and he made claims and demands on our lives. And the challenge for us who say we're Christians is you can say you believe in Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of God, but not actually trust him. Something else becomes your functional Savior. We see this a little bit in Martha's response to Jesus. 
Jesus has this interaction with him because, you know, Lazarus is dead, and, and Martha, Jesus says, well, he'll rise, he will rise. And Martha says, yeah, I know he'll rise on the last day. Basically, I know he'll, he'll rise again. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe that? She says, yes, Lord, I believe. You are the Son of God, the Christ. So she says she believes he's the Son of God and the Christ, but what happens about 10 verses later when Jesus says, roll away the stone? Martha says, hey, you know, he stinketh. So what happened to the things she said just 10 verses earlier? I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. There is a resurrection. You can do anything. You're powerful. You're God. Oh, wait, but don't roll away the stone. He stinketh. We can live in a constant theoretical belief because we have not let the personal Jesus push deep into our hearts. But the Christian God is not an impersonal force. It is an incarnate person, Jesus, the Christ. He deals with us individually, and you need to see that. You know, both Mary and Martha, when they meet Jesus, say the exact same thing. Both of them say the exact same thing. Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And yet Jesus deals with each of them distinctly. With Martha, he has a theological argument with her. He confronts her in her unbelief and calls her to belief in him. With Mary, who says, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, what does Jesus do? He cries. With one, he gives the ministry of truth. With the other, the ministry of compassion. Jesus wants to meet each of us where we are in a given moment and walk with us in that. And that is very different than an abstract God. You can trust Jesus. Some impersonal force, it's a little harder to trust. But Jesus loves us, and he gives himself for us. You know, the reason why Jesus is crucified, according to John, is that he raised Lazarus from the dead. In verse 53, we read that the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem gathered together after the resurrection of Lazarus had become widespread, and people began to say, oh my goodness, this is the Christ. And they determined that they needed to put Jesus to death. It's literally from that day on, verse 53, they made plans to put Jesus to death. So think about the connection there. The reason for Jesus' death is the resurrection of Lazarus. So Jesus is approaching the grave to raise Lazarus. And what does he know is going to happen if he does? He knows very well the implications of doing something so profound and out in the open. To get Lazarus out of the grave, Jesus had to put himself in it. Lazarus regained his life at the expense of Jesus. But that's not just what he does for Lazarus, of course. It's what he does for all of us. That's the gospel story. That's the message of Christianity. The resurrection to eternal life that all of us are offered comes through Jesus' death. His paying for sin and confronting Satan and overcoming evil through his death and resurrection. How do, we, how do we have a faith that's not just abstract? Even a faith in the resurrection that's not just abstract? How do we cultivate a daily trust in Jesus? We get a picture of it 
in Mary's response to Jesus. It comes in the very next chapter. In chapter 12, which also Jesus, or that John cites in the beginning of chapter 11, because he wants to make the connection between what happens in 12 and the resurrection of Lazarus. What happens in the next verses of chapter 12 is that there was a dinner at Lazarus's house. And just as a description of it, this is sometime after Lazarus has been raised from the dead, and he's like, okay, wait, I'm still here. Jesus has gone away. He comes back. They're throwing a feast, probably in Jesus' honor, for this kind of cool thing he did, bringing me back to life. So Jesus is there at the head of the table with Lazarus in their house, which might have been a prominent house given the situation close to Jerusalem and the people who'd come to celebrate um, the resurrection of Lazarus or had mourning his death. So they're there in the house. Martha is serving, and Mary comes in. She takes an alabaster jar filled with this expensive ointment, a pound of it, and breaks it open and pours it on Jesus' feet to anoint his feet, and then undoes her hair and wipes his feet with her hair. Now, everything she did here was wrong. This was probably the most expensive thing she personally owned. It would have been for the anointing of a dead body. And once you opened it, it was done. It was like a closed clay pot. It would have been her most valued possession, the only thing she owned herself of incredible worth. She breaks it open and pours it on Jesus' feet, an act that a servant should have done. She lets down her hair, which was promiscuous, a little bit, it was just unheard of. Her very act is embarrassing, embarrassing to her, to the family. She's pouring out all this expensive stuff. And basically, what she's doing is she's worshiping. She's laying down her treasure, her reputation, her body at the feet of Jesus, saying, I'm yours. Because think about it, she does not fear losing her reputation or her wealth or her very body because her treasure is in Jesus, not in these things. How do we live in the light of the resurrection? We need to exchange the source of our fears. Here's what I've seen in my own life, just kind of thinking about it, is this, and we'll bring it to a close here. A fear comes when I feel something important to me is threatened, right? So think about anything that you have fears of, and I don't mean afraid of like spiders, okay? Fear as in worry, things you're anxious about, your fears. Your fears are built around something important to you possibly being threatened. What I've found in my life, and probably you've seen this too, is my fears get displaced when another more important or imminent thing is threatened. So if I have fears and worries about like one of my grown kids and the life choices they're making, that can quickly get displaced by news of a parent who has been in a tragic accident, right? So one fear is displaced by another more imminent or prominent fear. The only thing that can be more important, more imminent in our life that can never be threatened is Jesus. Because of who he is, 
and what I have in him, when Jesus is my most important and imminent thing, I know that what I have and what I really treasure can't be taken away. It can't be killed. To the extent that Jesus is what I most treasure, I cease to live in fear of anything. Fearlessness grows from the seed of the worship of Jesus. In fear, we lay down our fears, our treasures, at the feet of Jesus. And we trust him each day. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we live in a world that does have the evil of sin and suffering and death. And even now, there's evil all around us and in our own lives. And we see it and we've experienced it and we grieve and we hate it. But you have come to raise the dead and to bring us resurrection life even now. Help us to see what we need to lay down at your feet to worship you each day and trust you as our Savior. Amen.